Hey friends, you are listening to the Grace Story Church podcast. To learn more about Grace Story and how you can get plugged into our community, visit gracestory.church. All right, we're continuing our study through the book of Romans. And so again, turn with me. We are in chapter 15. That's Romans 15 through the first 13 verses. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Jesus Christ, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy, as it is written, Therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again it is said, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, The root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles. In him will the Gentiles hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. This is the word of the Lord. All right, that's Romans chapter 15, verses 1 through 13. Romans 15, verses 1 through 13. If you have a Bible, go ahead and turn there, and we're going to Dig right in. Romans chapter 15. Before, before God called me to ministry, I was a music composition major and French horn major. Double major, music composition, French horn. And my first semester as a French horn major, we had to do a recital with all of the French horn, what they call the French horn studio. And so I don't know how everybody else knew what they were supposed to do, but we showed up for the recital and I looked around and we're about to go on stage and all the other French horn players are there backstage and everybody had on a tux and a dress. And I looked down at myself and I had on a bright orange Pearl Jam shirt with a big target on the front and a pair of corduroy pants and some corduroy shoes. And it was, it was just one of those moments when I was super aware that I was not made to fit in. It just was one of those moments when I knew this is going to make trouble. And sure enough, the, all of the professors in the music department got together to have a conversation whether or not to kick me out of the music department for showing up to a recital that way. But my French horn professor saved the day and kept me in the department. And it just, man, it illustrates this thing where 
lots of us have these moments when, for whatever reason, we just can't quite feel like we're on the inside, right? And sometimes it's just a mistake. Sometimes it's just an accident. But human nature, human nature, hear this, is to divide. It's in us since the fall to divide. And for reasons that have nothing to do with accidental choices of clothing, right? But we, the reason that we're, we're so prone to division is because we're so thirsty for inclusion. Isn't that ironic? And so because we're so thirsty to fit in, because we're so thirsty to belong, because we're so thirsty to be part of something, that drives us to look for people to exclude. Because as we push them away, we more clearly and sharply define the lines that we think hold us in. And so we have this drive within us that comes from our deep insecurity that pushes us to push others away. And that's been happening since literally the beginning of human history. Think about it. Immediately after the fall, immediately after Adam and Eve decide to rebel against God together in the garden, we are given some stories and those stories are not just random stories that the author thought was cool and so he decided to include them. No, he's trying to illustrate something about human history. He's trying to illustrate something about human nature. And so what does he do? He starts showing us that the immediate effect of the fall is murder. It's the immediate effect. I mean, they skipped right over, they skipped right over stealing each other's lunch money, right? They skipped right over the, the little sins and went immediately to one of the top ten. Boom. I think, you know, I'm not going to steal somebody's quarter. I'm going to kill my brother. Right? And that's because of the very clear function that sin has of alienating us from God and from one another. That's the impact of sin. And the story of human history is the story of that playing out. In families, we see that playing out. In friendships, we see that playing out. In communities, we see that playing out. In national politics, we see that playing out. And in the international world, we see that playing out. All throughout history. And one of the instances of that has been from the beginning of the Bible all the way until the coming of Jesus Christ, this rift between God's people and the nations. God's people, the Jews, the Israelites, and the surrounding nations. There was a lot of enmity there. And, and that only became more and more pronounced throughout history, and it was at a really high point when Jesus came on the scene because you had the most powerful nation in the history of the world occupying Jewish territory. They were holding the Jewish people under their laws, their expectations. They were determining their lifestyle. They were determining the ways in which they could practice or not practice their faith. And so there was belligerence there. And then Jesus comes on the scene right in the middle of all that. 
He lives this life of obedience. And in this life of obedience, he, he brings it to fulfillment in this perfect death and resurrection. And we know that Jesus does this so that we can be forgiven of our sins, right? But something else happens, and Paul calls this the deep mystery of the gospel, which is that the dividing wall between the Jews and the nations is broken down so that in the body of Christ, they're replaced with one people. So the mission of God is to take all of this alienation, all of this belligerence, all of this enmity, and to put it to an end in the death of Jesus Christ so that in his resurrection, he creates one new person in place of the two. And now Paul's been telling us for the last couple chapters how we have some problems in the church which arise because we have both Jewish believers who come from a background where they're privy to the law, who come from a background where they've long worshipped the one true God. And then we have these Gentile believers who come from a pagan background. They're coming from um, religions where there are multiple gods. They're coming from religions where they kind of did whatever they wanted to. And now these two are joined together in one body only by faith in Jesus Christ. And so there are issues there. And last week, what we heard from Paul was that, the last two weeks actually, is that there are strong, strong Christians and weak Christians. And this is a rhetorical strength and a rhetorical weakness. But the point that he's trying to make is that, look, the strong are those who know that their acceptance before God is only on the basis of faith in Jesus Christ. And therefore, they hold on to their liberties. I don't have to follow this rule. 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 Praise God. I'm going to love my liberties. And then we have the weak Christians. And what Paul means by that is people who are more scrupulous, who are a little bit nervous about stepping outside the bounds on some of these laws that Jesus Christ has done away with. Laws like don't eat food sacrificed to idols. And how, was this, how did this play out? Will Paul said, look, if you're at somebody's house and they're serving you meat, then look, just don't ask them if it's sacrificed to idols because you know and I know that that idol is powerless, that that idol is nothing in comparison to the one God of the universe. You just eat your food, enjoy your food, eat the steak, delight in it, don't worry about it. But if they tell you then, that's when maybe you need to not eat it. But so we've got this confusion about food sacrifice to idols. Some people are like, there's no way I'm ever going to eat that. Other people are like, well, it's okay. And Paul says the way that it becomes not okay is if you think it's not okay. And those of you who are strong should not be trying to talk the weak into joining you and doing things that they think are wrong. Because you're going to shipwreck their conscience. And now Paul is going to talk once more about this relationship between strong and weak. And that's how we get into chapter 15, verse 1. He's, he's now going to really bring this home. But what I want to do is actually turn this passage, verses 1 through 13, inside out so that we can see 
the seams of it and try to understand exactly what Paul's trying to get across here because I had a hard time trying to figure out how all of this material verses 1 through 13 is related and how it builds on itself and what Paul's actually trying to do in this passage. And so we're going to start in verse 8 and and we're going to see the piece of this text that holds it all together and then we're going to move back to the beginning together and see what the implications are that Paul's spelling out on the basis of verses 8 through 12. Everybody ready? All right, let's go. Verse 8. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles or the nations might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, therefore I will praise you among the nations and sing to your name. And again it is said, rejoice, O nations, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you nations, and let all the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the nations. In him will the nations hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. And so what Paul wants us to do here is consider Christ. He wants us to look at what Jesus Christ came to be, what he came to do, and what he came to accomplish so that we can get our heads around who we are called to be in Christ as the church. Right. So he says, consider Christ. And the first thing that he would have us ask is, how did Christ come? How did Christ come? How did the God of the universe, the one who spoke the world into existence, the, the one who by like the very breath of his lips brought into existence the trillions of galaxies that exist. Did you hear that? Trillions of galaxies, people, with billions of stars in each one. It is unfathomable the scope of what Jesus did with his words so what did he, when he became a human being, this all-powerful, this all-powerful God, how did he come? And look at, what, look at what Paul says. Christ became a servant. Christ became a servant. And I want to tell you, there are uncomfortable implications to that. There were uncomfortable implications to Christ coming as a servant. I remember being in the hallway. I remember exactly where I was. It was at the very end of the hallway, and I was getting into my locker. It was in the, I think it was in the 10th grade, and all of a sudden there was somebody behind me shoving me into my locker, threatening me, and I was just about to turn around, and I don't know what I was going to, if I was going to clock him, if I was going to talk, what, what the next response was going to be. But I felt more than prepared to handle the situation. And then I heard the quarterback of the football team say, hey, get your hands off him. And now how do you, here's the thing. I could have been, I could have been grateful, right? I could have been, I could have been thankful. Like, thanks, for, thanks for looking out. Appreciate it. I'm not really in the mood for a fight today. But you know what I felt? I felt kind of mad at him. I was like, why are you taking up from me? Like, I, I can handle this dude, you know? What are you implying? Just because I'm five foot two doesn't mean I can't take care of myself in the hallway, in the, right? But 
Because when someone serves us, there's an implication attached. What's the implication? It's that we're weak. We need served. We have a need for someone's strength outside of our own. And what we need to recognize here is the fact that Jesus came as a servant should remind us all that we are unanimously weaklings. In comparison with Jesus Christ, listen, there is room for no other hero. No one else is going to save the day but Christ alone. We're all together weak in comparison with him. So he came as a servant. He came to the circumcised. He came as a servant to the circumcised. And watch what Paul's doing, right? He's speaking to the Jewish believers. And he's saying to them, you... You are such a people that you had a desperate need to be served. You who have the law, you who have the patriarchs, you who have this legacy, you who have the temple, you had a need to be served. And he's saying to the Gentiles, Jesus came to these people. What an honor. You see what he's doing? He's... He's again, he's helping everyone see the the glory of what Jesus has done for them. And he's also highlighting their need. And he's fighting against any feelings of superiority that they may feel towards one another. So he came as a servant to the circumcised. Well, why did he do that? Why did he come as a servant to the circumcised? Well, Paul tells us two reasons. First one is this. He came to show God's truthfulness Jesus came to show God's truthfulness now go out in the world and tell people that go out in the world and tell people that well the reason Jesus came is actually to show that God was telling the truth for millennia that's not the Jesus that people want to talk about is it that's not the Jesus that that people who don't yet trust him want to hold your life up in comparison to all right, but what they want to talk about is that Jesus came to love people, right? And Jesus did come to love people. He came to show us the love of God. But what Paul wants to emphasize is that Jesus came to demonstrate that God means what he says. That the entirety of the Old Testament, the entirety of the Hebrew Bible is real and true. He's, he's not breaking into the real world. He's defining the real world. Jesus Christ came to show what is real. God is true. And it's in Jesus' life. And listen, we, we have to get our heads around this. Jesus, Jesus came to show God's truthfulness. In other words, Jesus had a purpose for his life, a conscious purpose. All the things that happened to him, all the things that he did, all the things that he accomplished, these were not accidents. It's not like Jesus was living his life in neutral like he was the little metal ball in a, in a pinball machine 
and everything's just kind of knocking him around and he's making the best choice he can at every moment. No, Jesus is the sovereign God of the universe. He knew exactly what was happening. Jesus intentionally fulfilled all that God had promised and all that God had commanded in and through his life. He came to show that God is truthful. And then one more reason. To confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. Right? In other words, he's, he's showing that everything that God has promised all throughout the covenant history of the Bible. Remember, we're in the Abraham covenant with our kids, right? And they've been learning exactly what all this Abraham stuff is all about. And we know that the people who belong to God are all those who hold on to his what? His promises, exactly right. And so Jesus is coming specifically to fulfill God's promise to Abraham. And one more reason, Paul says, in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. For his mercy. In other words, so that it wouldn't just be those who were of the Jewish nation who give glory to God, who go to the temple and bring their worship, but that all the nations, every nation on the earth, all these nations who worship this God or that God, that they would all sing their praises to the one true God, the God who created a fathomless universe with trillions of galaxies each containing billions of stars all the nations are to be brought in so that's our that's our calling card right jesus came so that the nations would join in this chorus bringing glory to god now if you don't have jewish heritage then you're part of the nations raise your hand if that's you how many people do we have here who are included in the nations or the Gentiles? Yeah, me too. And so now we're going to find out how can we, as those who have been brought into God's people by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, now bring glory to God? How can we do that? And to find out, we're going to go back to the beginning of the passage. And see what Paul is up to here. Here's the first thing. We're going to bring glory to God by fulfilling our obligations. Now, fulfilling our obligation. Look at verse 1. We who are strong. And remember for Paul, he's been using strong and weak in a specific way. He's been using strong to talk about Gentile Christians, right? Remember that because the Gentile Christians are those who are not all that hung up on trying to hold on to all of these customs and traditions. Their consciences are not as weak as these Jewish Christians who are still a little bit scrupulous about the law. Paul says, you who are strong, you Gentile Christians, have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak, the Jewish Christians, and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor 
for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. So Paul wants us to fulfill our obligation. You used to have this friend in Lexington, and whenever I would see him, he would do this thing where he would ask a question, and the reason he's asking the question is so I would ask the question back. You got any friends like that? And so he would say, Coach, so how much you, how much you bench in these days, man? Right? How much you bench in these days? And I was like, okay, I know why you're asking me that. I'm, I'm, you want me to answer the question, but you don't care how much I'm benching. What you really care about is for me to return the question by asking you how much you're benching these days because you just want to tell me how much you're bench pressing these days. You got friends like that that they just ask questions because they want you to ask the question? Obligation, right? And as soon as, as, soon as I hear him ask the question, I'm like, ah. The obligation, he's pulled the obligation string because none of, us, none of us likes to have obligations laid into our laps like that. Obligations. But Paul says we do have an obligation. We have a very precise obligation that those who are strong, who are not encumbered by these taboos, right, that we would bear with those who are encumbered by them. The strong would bear with the weak. And how did, how did we get obligated to them? How did that happen? That happened by being included in the body of Christ. We became one body. So now those who are weak are one body with us. They're our brothers and sisters. We become one family. We, we are a kinship. No one has to explain to you why you're obligated to your parents. No one has to explain to you why you're obligated to your children. No one has to explain to you why you're obligated to your siblings. In the same way, now that Jesus has made us one family, no one should have to explain to us why we're obligated to each other. Of course we are. We're a family. And so the strong are obligated to bear with the weak. And then Paul, he, he contrasts this with pleasing ourselves. In other words, we don't just do the thing that we want to do because we know that we have the liberty to do it. We don't gobble up our liberties. But instead, we, we choose how to behave on the basis of what we know about our brothers and sisters in Christ. On the basis of our love for them. So we become obligated to the weak just by means of being strong. Just by means of being strong. And Paul tells us that this obligation means that we must bear with them and that we must seek to please them in order to build him up. And what's the result? I want to ask you a question. What's the result of building up something weak? It, that's right. It becomes strong, right? It becomes strong. So many of us, we might think like we, we see somebody who is just weighed down with these scrupulous tendencies, right? 
And we think, well, the best way to get out of that is I just need to drag you along to enjoy some liberties, right? We just need to smoke a cigar together. You'll be fine. We just need to, we just need to exercise some liberties and you're going to come along. Well, no, what Paul says is like the actual way is to bear with them in their weakness, to join them in their weakness. And that's why Paul has just given us this picture of Jesus Christ, who came as what? A servant. So just as we are weak and Jesus became like us in order to serve us, so now the strong become like the weak in order to serve them and build them up. And that's how we become a church of strong Christians. And you know what strong Christians do? They rejoice in the gospel. Rejoice. So we'll be the happiest people in the world if we bear with one another for a while. So we've got to fulfill our obligations. And then Paul says this next thing that he wants us to do. Fulfill our obligations and... In verses 5 through 7, he wants us to live in harmony. Live in harmony. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. So he wants us to live in harmony. And there's three things about this harmony. The first thing is that harmony is a gift. It comes from God. It comes from God. He says that he wants God to grant. He wants God to grant this harmony. We can't manufacture it. One of my best friends, Dr. Taylor Worley, says community is not made. It is discovered. Community is not made, it is discovered. It's a gift of God. We find ourselves in it, in the midst of it, living in this gift that God gives to us. It's not something we can conjure. It's not something we can create. It's not something we can manufacture. God just does it. He gives it to us as a gift, and we then live within it. So Paul's praying this. May God grant you this gift of harmony. Man, listen, if you haven't been thanking God for the harmony that we enjoy as a church. Now's your chance. You didn't do it. You didn't manufacture it. You didn't conjure it. You didn't create it. You didn't make it. You did not do it. God did it by his grace and he gave it to us as a gift and we find ourselves in the midst of this gift inhabiting this gracious gift of God where we have harmony as a church. Isn't that a beautiful thing? And it's a frail, fragile thing can be disrupted in a moment. It can be disrupted by your sin. It can be disrupted by your relational choices. It can be disrupted by your words. So let's uphold and give thanks for this gift of God and seek with our hearts to preserve the harmony that God has given us. So it comes from God. It's a gift. And then he says that it accords with Christ. Harmony accords with Christ. What does he mean by that? Well, he's just been, we've just been talking about what he means by that, that Christ came to abolish the dividing wall between Jews and Gentiles and create in their place one new people, right? Harmony. Millennia of discord 
millennia of enmity broken, thrown in the garbage, one new harmonious people in their place on the basis of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, defined and empowered by the Holy Spirit. We're one. It accords with Christ, with his mission and his accomplishment. Finally, Paul says, it brings glory to God. Harmony brings glory to God. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Well, what does he mean by that? What, what brings God glory? What brings God glory? It's when our words, our actions, and our intentions are aligned toward the highest good. His glory. When we, as one pastor puts it, when we understand God's design and pursue it. We understand and pursue God's design. That brings God glory. And so Paul says that living in harmony, it does that. It unveils the genius of God in our community. Harmony does that. There's a fancy Hebrew phrase that's worth learning. It's, it's one of the few that's worth learning and knowing and having handy as a vocab word. Everybody ready for it? I want you to say it after me. Ready? Tohu wabohu. Everybody say Tohu wabohu. It's fun to say, so you're welcome. Tohu wabohu. You know in Genesis chapter 1 when the Bible says that in the beginning when God created, right, the earth was formless and void. Remember that? The Hebrew phrase there is tohu wabohu. Yeah, that's it. You got it. Tohu wabohu. And at creation, step by step, day by day, word by word, in creation, God eradicates, he decimates, destroys, defeats tohu wabohu, right? He, you could say he crushes it under his feet. Tohu wabohu. But then, but then, in the fall, in the rebellion, when Adam and Eve decide to eat from the fruit that God had forbidden them to eat, when they said yes to the serpent, it's like, it's like they pulled out a box cutter and they just slit a little flap in the fabric of creation. And just, you could just kind of see tohu wabohu. Creeping, creeping back in, right? And ever since then, tohu wabohu has been creeping back into creation. When you plant a garden, what do you start to see pretty soon? <laughs> Weeds, tohu wabohu. Once you got married and started having kids, all of a sudden, all of a sudden, your illusions of having the greatest immune system in the history of God's created order 
started to diminish a little bit, didn't they? Wait a minute. I can get sick. What is this? Sickness. Tohu wabohu. The tragedies that we read about on television, the friends we lose in real life, the tragedies that we face, and the suffering that we deal with. Tohu wabohu. Stepping on Legos. <laughs> Tohu wabohu. I have, a, I have a griddle that fits inside of my smoker. It's like a, it's a round griddle. It's carbon steel. And once you've used it a few times, it's super, super smooth, right? Just beautifully smooth, easy to flip your pancakes, easy to flip your burgers. Everything, just nothing sticks. It's wonderful. I clean it every once in a while with steel wool. And when I'm cleaning it with steel wool, I'm, I'm all, it's like, wonderful the whole way around and every single time there's this one tiny little spot up against the edge of the rim and there's this tiny little piece of metal that the fabricator didn't perfectly smooth when he was grinding this and the steel wool will catch and then I'm like scrubbing and the steel wool is coming undone right because I'm it's this pointy place that's just it's poking out and it's causing problems in this place where otherwise there's harmony and order and everything's great. Tohu wabohu, right? And here's the thing. God's called us to unity. He's called us to harmony. And through the preaching of the word, whether it's me or someone else, we're, we're seeking to uphold that, to build that, to foster that harmony. But inevitably, there's little pointy places in our fellowship, right? Inevitably, there are going to be little pointy places where, that threaten to unravel. That threaten to unravel our harmony, that threaten to unravel our community. And it's not just in our community, but it's in our lives. There's these pointy places, right? And so what Paul's asking us to do is to recognize that in Christ Jesus, God has done what is necessary once again to eradicate tohu wabohu. Listen, Jesus has conquered sin and death. He has laid sin and death under his feet. He has taken them to the grave. Tohu wabohu are defeated. And it's our task as believers Check this out. To image that in our fellowship. Image that in our fellowship. In other words, be a group of people who live like Tohu Wabohu is eradicated. Amen? And praise God for the ways that we do and beg for his help in the ways that we don't. So image it. But then to execute it. To execute that harmony. In the world. And how do we execute the harmony of Christ in the world? How do we do that? Well, we do it by the faithful 
winsome, consistent declaration of the gospel of Jesus Christ among our friends and family and neighbors. That's how we do it. So what I want to pray is, I want to pray first of all that God would, God would continue to uphold the harmony of our church. And number two, I want to pray that God would use us to be those who image and execute the harmony of Christ in the world. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the Holy Spirit's inspiration of the Apostle Paul, who was able then to write these words with such clarity and force. And I pray that each of us would surrender to it and be formed by it. I pray that we as a community would surrender to it and be formed by it. God, thank you for the harmony of this church. It is a gift from you, and we dare not take credit for it. But we give you thanks. We give you the glory for the joy that we have fellowshipping with one another. And God, we ask you to uphold and maintain that. Help us to continue to live in harmony with one another. And God, we pray that you would equip us to image that harmony before a watching world and to execute that harmony in the world as we faithfully and winsomely declare the gospel to our friends, our families, and our neighbors for the sake of your glory until Christ comes again. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Grace Story Church podcast. For more resources and information on our church, visit gracestory.church.